This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Flat Out Farno, you're Laddie H, host of Flat Out Pride on your Free FM dial. If you're a Waikato local with an idea for your own show, Free FM would love to hear from you. Check out our website, freefm.org.nz, or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power. The author, Roy Sinclair, died recently after living his life to the full, a career extending from the National Film Unit to part-time as Christchurch Heritage tram driver to photojournalist with The Press. Aliko and I will never be younger than we are now, so what's our plan? To pedal the length of Britain? To go from Nice in France through the French Alps to Geneva in Switzerland? Will it ever happen? We realise the risk is that, if we don't, we might end up with only an easy chair awaiting our retirement. Meanwhile, our mountain bikes are raring to go. We again cycle the South Island assessing how compatible are we with the cycle-touring lifestyle and with each other. We imagine ourselves pedalling the best part of 150 kilometres down the Otago Central Rail Trail, from Alexandra to Middlemarsh, blown by a breeze on our backs, ending each day with ample time for relaxing in the licensed premises of rejuvenated small towns along the trail. Reality is a tad different. We're riding into a nasty nor'easterly, likely to go on for days. Unseasonal rain has rendered the trail surface tacky, impeding progress. Our first pub stop is a Chateau Creek, a tavern in a tiny town with intriguing roots. Built in 1886, the original tavern structure still stands as it did, in mud brick and stone used in walls and floors. It's back then that Chateau Creek boomed with rabbiters, offering to try to eliminate rabbits on the early sheep stations by setting gin traps and cyanide. Pulling our beers, our host politely admonishes me, asking, How many days are you planning for the rail trail? Two. Then you two don't have time to sit around drinking at Chateau Creek, she chides. It's true that since starting in the late morning from Alexandra, we've clocked up a mere 17 kilometres in two hours, dawdling in a landscape of schist rock, 
fetching fragrance of wild thyme. So we'll have to hasten to reach our destination for the day, Oturihua. A toasted sandwich sustains us along the way. We extract our laden bicycles amid the impressive array of distance-shrinking Harley-Davidsons, whose proud owners we've seen in the tavern, blazing over lunch in their cool leather gear. No chiding for them from the host. We note the names of many rivers we cross end with burn, which comes from Gaelic meaning creek, suggesting Scottish heritage. In fact, such names reflect the mischief of Chief Surveyor of Otago Province, John Turnbull Thompson. Call to map important geographic features of central Otago quickly as squatters and gold seekers come looking to settle. He complies, bestowing names to reflect the sheer wildness of the landscapes, including Raggedy, Ruffridge, Rock and Pillar. Some names, such as Chateau Creek and Louder, he borrowed from Scotland, and being derived from the very rural, picturesque Scott Borders parish of Abbey St. Bathans in Berwickshire. Here in New Zealand, Surveyor John Thompson appends the Scottish saint's name to a town in the Maniototo, an elevated plain farthest from the sea and sparsely populated today, yet Gold seekers once flocked there in thousands to prospect around St. Bathan's Blue Lake. There's more to these names than meets the eye. Turns out, John Thompson had settled at first on Māori place names to pinpoint places, only to have these rejected by the stuffy provincial council members in Dunedin, complaining they can't pronounce or spell the Māori. The list they returned to John Thompson to put right. It's then he resorts to listing ridiculous combinations of animals and the Scottish term burn, cowburn, oxburn, sowburn, pigburn, horseburn, and hogburn. Some of these names survive till now on or near Otago Central Rail Trail. Today it's tourists who come. In the 1860s they were foreigners too. Irish, Scots, Australians, Chinese, and my own Cornish ancestors seeking the elusive glint of gold. Yet the future fortune lies in filming the crystalline rock outcrops the geologists name Schist, and Sir Peter Jackson uses to dramatic effect as backdrops in his production The Lord of the Rings. It's a hit overseas. Audiences often seek the same scenery when they ultimately tour New Zealand on holiday, most popular among cyclists from Europe and the United States, Japan, and attracting a steady stream of New Zealanders. When the rails came out, eliminating Cromwell, Alexandra and Ranfilly as rail destinations, much credit goes to the Department of Conservation for having foresight to negotiate acquiring the disused Middlemarsh to Clyde Rail Corridor, protecting the public's ongoing access to the historic rail route, which might otherwise have gone to adjoining landowners. Local communities worked with DOC to develop and promote the trail, forming the Otago Central Rail Trail Trust. Six years and $850,000 later, the trail reopens as a recreational asset for cyclists, mountain bikers, trampers and horse riders. 
The trail weaves between mountain ranges and follows river gorges. From the Dunedin end, the first 60 kilometres of Otago Central Railway that runs up to Middlemarsh through the spectacular Taieri Gorge is intact. Dunedin City owns it for the daily tourist trains operated by Otago Excursion Train Trust. It crosses high viaducts, bridges supported on crafted stonework piles, tunnels spooky, pitch black inside, and country pubs fit for a pint. It's Sir Graham Sydney country, so called thanks to the Dunedin artist whose brushstrokes capture the spaciousness of central Otago landscapes. Peddling down an old railway line has an obvious appeal. In my youth, I go on railway journeys with my mountaineering father. These trips are, to me, to escape from exceedingly boring familiar urban landscape and strap-wielding 1950s schoolteachers to savour the magic of rails clicking past spectacular, isolated parts of New Zealand. There's something about them, perhaps a loneliness that roads can't quite reflect with the same conviction as a railway. Another celebrity of Otago, semi-reclusive, celebrated writer-poet Brian Turner, isn't home while we stay at Uturihua. Our first night on the cycle trail. By then, his many accolades include being the fourth New Zealand poet laureate. When finally we meet, in a Christchurch cafe, he talks of being a bike rider. He's often on the rail trail, he says, imagining himself a competitor in the Tour de France. I love to push hard up the hills and go like the clappers down as if I'm in a breakaway group in the Tour de France, he says. Brian Turner is a great advocate of the rail trail. He lords it as being a real lifesaver, bringing a boon to stores, pubs and accommodation providers everywhere. No better example than of Gilchrist's store, the delightful old-time general store that's in a time warp at Oturihua. On rising next day, after pitching our tent overnight in the campground, we wonder what the store stocks that we need. It caters for everyone, from bread rolls to freeze-dried foods, from hardware to gumboots. Stepping inside, it is a world apart. Built in 1899, Thomas Gilchrist takes it over three years later. Tom's family earned the community's respect in extending credit as settlers struggle to survive the Great World Depression, which follows the financial Wall Street crash of 1927. Old signs and posters in the Gilchrist store windows suggest that here rural life runs at a slower and arguably friendlier pace. Well, those of us travelling on the rail trail do definitely enjoy the friendly lifestyle. These days, the Oturihua community owns the store with Brian and Linda Shear to run it. Once stocked up at the store, we're setting off on our second day on the Otago Central Rail Trail. We soon climb to its highest point, 618 metres above sea level, then cross the 45th parallel south. From there, 
we enjoy a pleasant downhill ride to the tiny one-pub town of Wedderburn, made famous when Graham Sidney paints July on the Maniototo. That shows, in the 1970s, the railway goods shed in the snow. When the railway closed, they took it away. However, soon after we visit, we hear it's been found in a coal pit. So the goods shed goes back to its original site in Wedderburn. By early afternoon, we're at Rantley, largest town on the old railway. Not only is its former station intact, but serves admirably as the information centre with superb collection of railway memorabilia. Since one of my tyres got pinched between bits of remaining track ballast, I've had a slow leak, so decide the railway platform is perfect to change the rear tyre tube. Resuming the journey, we're glad to escape the headwind as the trail veers to the south. It follows a jagged landscape formed at the whim of the Taere River. Looking ahead, I can see how banking the railbed at Benz helped keep the equilibrium as trains rounded curves in the line. I'm beginning to view the closing of that line as an act of vandalism. Building the railway had undoubtedly been an heroic effort. When work began in 1879, it was referred to as the Otago Great Central Trunk Railway. It's intended to reach Lake Wanaka and the forests of Westland. It parted from the South Island main trunk at Wingatui, 12 kilometres south of Dunedin. It head inland through Taieri Gorge. It's so spectacular as to be sometimes dubbed the Rio Grande of New Zealand. Gold was the initial lure for the railway, but as that declines in Otago, agriculture, orchards and tourism keep it going for 42 years till literally stopped in its tracks at Cromwell, 235 kilometres from its starting point. Interestingly, it took the same time to build the railway as to build the Anglican Cathedral in Christchurch's Cathedral Square. One of the great sports for New Zealand governments is to conscientiously build railways, then, like a child tiring of a once-favourite toy, finding reason to close them. Insanely, the Department of Railways often sides with the government when it comes to closing of their great lines. The loss of railways' protection after a revamp of transport licensing regulations in the 1980s, meant railways such as the Otago Central could not compete with road transport. Yet trucks don't contribute road charges that reflect realistic costs of the toll they take on New Zealand roads. Furthermore, the trucking industry won't pay its truck drivers wages comparable to those earned on the railways. The extremity of the Otago Central Line, Clyde to Cromwell, succumbed in April 1980 to another cause, the massive and controversial Clyde Dam. There was no choice. The existing railway and road would be flooded, and the road reconstructed higher up the hillside. What railway line remains, as the great dam fills, is kept so steel and cement is delivered from Dunedin, to the project site. The 150-kilometre section from Clyde to Middlemarch finally closes in April 1990. I feel weary, the onset of rain discouraging, 
So my mind drifts into imagining being on the afternoon express from Alexandra to Dunedin. Six smart carriages pursue the AB-class locomotive, confidently steaming at the front. A cup of coffee awaits when I alight for a refreshment stop at Middlemarch. From there, it's just another hour or so till dinner in Dunedin. Our reality is different. Tired muscles, rain trickling into my jacket, but I keep the wheels turning to progress along the base of the Rock and Pillar Mountains. South of Hyde, we reach the stark monument marking the spot of an infamous train crash of June the 4th, 1943. That claimed 21 lives and injured a lot more. We slow to a standstill in the darkening evening surrounds of the gloomy monument to human frailty. It seems, from the official investigation, that the afternoon train entered straw-cutting at speed, causing the locomotive AB782 to leave the rails, dragging the first five carriages with it. The 53-year-old loco-driver had 35 years' experience on the railways, his duties not requiring him to work excessive hours. Did he go to sleep? A witness attests to seeing the loco-driver on the day of the crash drinking in the Ranfilly Hotel at half-past ten in the morning, less than three hours before stepping onto his train. He's found guilty of manslaughter, spends three years in prison with hard labour. He dies soon after release. The Railways Department has a reputation for being a hard taskmaster, and the findings of boards of inquiry were often controversial. Were this loco driver's woes a symptom of the railway's wider unaddressed problems, among them drinking while on duty, and he was their convenient scapegoat? There at this brooding monument that commemorates the disaster, we abandon the cycle trail as it's becoming increasingly muddy. On the sealed highway nearby, we make a fast dash toward Middlemarts. It's a long day. Having pedalled a tough 88 kilometres, we find lodgings and a hose to remove most of the mud from our bikes. So, feeling satisfied, we can enjoy the dinner we prepare. Next morning enjoying the rare warmth of sunshine at the end of our inaugural summer cycling tour. We cruise round Middlemarsh with a bit of time to spare before going up to the steep climb to Pukirangi. That's where we'll catch the afternoon train to Dunedin. On one street, I find myself breaking gently to peer into an open garage that's abutting the footpath. It's one a houseproud person might want to hide from sight but I find it fascinating. Cobwebs adorn the sash window. Strands of twine are holding shallots rotting. A balding car tire is tied to a corrugated iron wall, and perched on a narrow shelf is a once-cherished, now-dusty bicycle. A Rally 20! Its dulling red paint retains a hint of class. Its tires are perished, its lowered seat suggests its last rider was a child, reminding me of my own childhood. 
one of my cherished school-day bicycles, a brand-new three-speed rally sport with full-size 66-centimetre wheels. Sadly, its destiny is to be stolen from the centennial pool at Christchurch. By the time my own children need to cycle to intermediate school in the 1990s, I had not ridden for years. We clinched two second-hand Rally 20s for sale in the press, just as they're losing popularity in favour of the 10-speed. The Rally 20 refers to a 20-inch wheel diameter. As a sort of all-purpose bike, it has generous adjustments to fit all sizes of rider. It's sometimes called the Rally Shopper. A folding version became popular in Europe and America during the 1970s and is often carried on ocean-voyaging yachts to unfold at the next port of call for an excursion into town. Paul, my eldest, is first to learn to ride his Rally 20, mechanically sound, but disadvantaged by its garish colour, yellow. Paul takes a crashing long time learning to balance his first two-wheeler while coordinating his feet and hands. Fortunately, most pile-ups are onto grass in a school playground. I'd run behind, gently holding the bike upright. A time-honoured technique. But as soon as my light touch is released, the bike wobbles and falls over. It seemed Paul would never learn, but he does, and is ready for road experience. This is where the Rally 20 shows its design advantages. I could ride the second one after simply adjusting the seat and handlebars to match my greater proportions. This other Rally is light blue. With its three-speed gears, it's not too different from my old Rally Sports. The quirky 20-inch wheels, correspondingly high seat, those stylish handlebars certainly make it a fun bike to ride. Despite my dawdling fitness, we ride around a good chunk of Christchurch till my son and later my daughter acquire the necessary road skills to survive the three-kilometre ride to school. In time, I bought my own bicycle and reintroduced myself to cycling for recreation with the hope I might fulfil an adolescent dream to travel the country, even the world, by pedal power. Considering my boyhood dream of cycling and riding the railways, it may seem surprising that I'd not be there in February 2000 for the opening of the Otago Rail Trail. The fact is that Harleko and I, having discovered the delights of our first ever cycle holiday during three weeks away from our work routines, are at that time engaging in earnest planning to cycle tour overseas. A good test of our resolve is when conditions for cycling are adverse. That's when lycra loses its luster, and it happens even in our South Island. Encountering on the homeward stretch that notorious nor'easterly wind which slows my wheels, draining my energy across the Canterbury Plains. Being on a straight highway with well-paved road shoulder to ride on, and having a rear vision mirror, I feel relaxed about plugging into my tiny FM radio, yet all I hear reminds me of what it is we wish to escape. In a hard-hitting interview, radio presenter Maggie Barry is locked in debate with an executive of one of the big-name banks. 
She's trying to get her guest to admit the bank's alleged practice of pressuring bank staff to sell financial products that clients could find hard to afford. A union representative of the bank staff accuses the bank of penalising staff who don't deliver on that. Is this a world we wish to engage in? Its outcries and controversy, exploitation, officials bungling at high level? Or is it time to go out into the world independently, to see and cycle wherever we wish? As my trip over the Southern Alps nears its end, I think of our homecoming, our jobs, the unfolding chaos in Christchurch. It looms larger with each pedal stroke. Thanks for listening, and welcome to join us next week at the same time for another in the series told or adapted from the book Pedal Power, whose author, Roy Sinclair, died recently. This is broadcast on Free FM 89.0. Proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. Trailer for sale or rent. Rooms to let 50 cents. No phone, no pool, no pets. Ain't got no cigarettes. I work two hours of pushing broom. Buys an 8B12 4-bit broom. I'm a man of means. By no means King of the road Third box car Midnight train Destination Banger main Old worn out Suit and shoes I don't pay No union dues I smoke old stogies I have found Short but not too Big around I'm a Man of means, by no means King of the road I know every engineer on every train All the children and all of the names And every handout in every town And every dog that ain't locked No one's around I sing trailer for sale or rent Rooms to let no phone, no pool, no pets I ain't got no cigarettes I've but two hours of pushing broom Buys an 8 
For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.